Brothers and sisters, our world has been turned upside down. Sports, concerts, movies, vacations, kids' activities, they've all been canceled. Churches have gone digital like ours. Uh, Schools are going to have serious modifications this fall. We have lost income. We have lost loved ones. We may be still living in the same place, but nothing is the same. We are in many ways in exile. We didn't choose this. This was forcefully driven upon us. We have been forcefully driven from what used to be our normal way of life. And much of what we used to know is in ruins. And today we're starting a new sermon, a new sermon series that I think is very timely for this time. It's called From Ruins to Restoration. And we're going we're gonna to look at how God restored the people from, from exile in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. And now most of us, we're less familiar with the biblical history around this time and the content of these books. Uh, so today, I want to give you a brief overview of the books, but I want to focus on the context first, because we won't understand the importance of the restoration until we first understand the ruins. And so I want to walk you through Jerusalem in exile, the ruins of this ancient city. But even before I get to that, I want to back up because this theme of exile actually goes back to the very beginning. When God made the world and Adam and Eve sinned, God exiles them away from the Garden of Eden and from His direct presence. And ever since, humanity has been in exile. You know, we're, we're not fully at home in this world. And the story of the Bible is God attempting to, to bring people into a land where his presence will dwell with them once again. So God calls Abraham's descendants to be his people. And after God delivers them out of slavery in Egypt, they enter into a covenant relationship with God, where if they obey God, God will bless them and establish them in the land and dwell with them. But if they disobey God, the, the consequence of that is God is going to drive them out of the land into exile. Now, in our church just finished reading Joshua, right, where the people, they win a battle at Jericho, and then they enter the land. And eventually, they become a nation with a king, and they build a temple for God's presence to dwell with them in the land. But what happens? The people, they disobey God, they begin to worship foreign, false gods, idols, and they begin to practice injustice. And this is where the text that we read this morning for our scripture reading picks up the story. It comes from 2 Chronicles 36, verse 14. It picks up with this. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. And he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So the people, 
they completely broke the covenant relationship they had with God. And so sometime around 600 B.C., God used the Babylonians to judge them and send them into exile. And this is the moment in the story where everything turns to ruins. I mean, we all know that God is a God of restoration. And we know the end of the story is about restoration. Restoration, it's what God does. But I'm going to dive into the ruins here even more. Because if you don't understand the ruins, you're not going to appreciate the restoration. So we're going to dive into the ruins. It's going to be kind of a downer, but we've got to dive into it, okay? So, number, so a few points about the ruins. Number one, the covenant is in ruins. The covenant relationship with God is in ruins. The prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied during the exile, he said, The people have returned to the sins of their ancestors, who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. See, the people, they had rejected God the Lord for other gods. They rejected following God's word. I mean, like an adulterous spouse, they were unfaithful to God when he had been so faithful to them. And God had tried. He, he had even sent many messengers, the prophets, but they didn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They mocked and scoffed at the messages. And so they broke the covenant totally. And so just like God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, God is going to drive the people out of the land. And this causes everything to be in ruins. So what happens is the Babylonians come and attack the nation. Now, we haven't had any recent wars on American soil, really. Um, so, I mean, we can remember the attack on Pearl Harbor, and most of us can remember uh, exactly where we were on 9-11 and the devastation that brought to America and, and the feeling that we had when that happened. So the Babylonians coming to attack, this is kind of like Judah's 9-11, except on a much larger and more devastating scale. And I want you to feel how everything is in ruins at this time. And the book of 2 Kings give us, gives us a little bit more detail here. And I want to read it to you, and I want you to feel this. So in the ninth, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, so for several months. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe, there was no food for the people to eat. Please go to the next slide. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. And though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Now, hold on, that should ring some bells. What does that remind you of? You see, Jericho, this is where God had done a miracle, where God had given them the victory. They won the battle at Jericho through the power of God, and it was the sign that God was giving the people the land as they entered into the promised land. And now, 
The people don't win the battle at Jericho, they lose the battle at Jericho. And it's the sign that God is punishing the people and not bringing them into the land, but driving them away from it. But the story keeps going. Next slide. After this, all his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured, uh, King Zedekiah, the Isra Israel's king. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where a sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now, the Babylonians, they were terrorists. I mean, this is awful enough to see your, your sons die right before your eyes and then blind it. But there's even more poetic justice going on here because the people are back in Babylon. And if you remember all the way back when God established his covenant with Abraham, God actually calls Abraham out of the land of Babylon to come to the promised land. Now the king of Abraham's descendants is being taken away captive back to Babylon. All the way back where they started. The covenant is in ruins. It's in ruins. And many people, especially all the leaders, they're deported to Babylon and many are killed there. They're executed there. And most, there are some people left in the land and that's mainly the poor people. And later, um, some of them tried to revolt against Babylon. But this causes a panic. In 2 Kings 25, 26, it says, At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, they fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. Now that should remind you of something else in the biblical story as well. Let me recap what's, what we've said so far. They've, they've lost the battle at Jericho. Abraham's descendants are back in Babylon, and now there's a group of people who have gone back to Egypt where they used to be slaves. I mean, this is the ultimate reversal of everything that God has done for the people over hundreds of years. This is devastating. The covenant is in ruins. They are out of the land, and they're back in Babylon, and they're back in Egypt. We can't underestimate how devastating the exile was. For God's people. Now that's only number one. I told you this was, this was going to be a downer. Number two, the temple is in ruins. Number two, the temple. And let, let me show you a, a scripture here. Second Chronicles 36, 18 through 19. Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials then they set fire to God's temple. See, about 400 to 500 years prior to this, King Solomon, David's son, had uh, built this temple and celebrated it with all the people with great fanfare and they dedicated this temple and God's glory filled it with a cloud and His glorious presence filled the place. And I believe this temple it contained generations upon generations of memories and moments with God. And now it was on fire. Some of you might recall the fire that was at Notre Dame in spring of 2019. And how there were people wailing and lamenting and mourning in the streets. And if people can mourn over a, an historic church like that, how much more do you think God's people were devastated? 
that the historic temple where God had dwelled, that King Solomon had built, how much more were they devastated that it was now on fire? And not only was it on fire, the Babylonians took all that was valuable in the temple. Second Kings, again, gives us some more details. It says they also took away the pots, the shovels, the wick trimmers, the dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and the sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold and silver. You remember those long passages in Exodus and Leviticus, reading about all the different furnishings in the the temple and the things that were made for the tabernacle? I mean, that's how much these things mattered to God and to the people, and now they are gone. Everything of value. I mean, the violation that this would cause. I mean, could you imagine a foreign army marching into our church, taking down this cross that we've adored for decades, this beautiful stained glass that goes back to the beginning of our church, this nice pulpit or maybe our Bible that's usually on the front. Imagine them taking all this stuff and then setting fire to our church. How would you feel? You'd be devastated. I mean, essentially they were robbed and then the whole thing was burned down. It was devastating. Again, that's not all. The temple's in ruins, but Jerusalem is in ruins as well. Jerusalem is in ruins as well. It says they set fire to God's temple and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. In fact, actually in 2 Kings, again, it gives us a bit more detail. It says here, he says he set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building, King Nebuchadnezzar burned down. I mean, friends, this is, this is an act of terrorism. The wall, their defense and protection, their security, that's torn down. And he burned the palaces, anything that was of value, and he burned all the houses. I mean, I mean imagine your home on fire. Gone. All your treasured possessions Gone. Many people died in in Jerusalem, and most of those who survived and escaped all of this calamity, they were deported to Babylon to live in a foreign land that's 900 miles away. That took at least a few months of travel to get there. And where they are going, they will be foreigners, they will be a minority, they will be servants, and they will be in exile from a promised land that's in ruins. And what Jeremiah prophesied came true. He said this, he kind of sums it up, this whole land will become a desolate ruin and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So friends, that's the context of Ezra and Nehemiah. The people have been in exile for 70 years and that's the state that their land is in. It's been that exile 70 years, that's longer than our church has been around and some of you can remember when it was started So it's a long time. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they were originally one book. And so really it's it's one story of how God's people went from ruins to restoration. And it didn't happen overnight. It covers a period of about 105 years from 538 BC to about 433 BC. And I want to help you see the forest for the trees uh, in this sermon series. So I want to quickly give you the big picture. In this story, there are going to be, there are three ruins that we've already covered. And so that means there's going to be three restoration projects 
that are led by three leaders who lead these projects. So let me go over them with you. So, number one, Zerubbabel restores the temple. Now, Zerubbabel, you're like, who is that? You know, <laughs> so I'm gonna have, we're going to have a fun time diving into this lesser-known character. And so Zerubbabel is going to help restore the temple, and thereby he's going to restore worship to the people of God. And then about 60 years later or so, Ezra is going to come, and he's going to restore the covenant. And he's going to uh, teach people the Torah and God's laws and teach them how to follow God and obey God. And so he's going to restore the people through the word of God. And then we have Nehemiah, who is going to restore Jerusalem by rebuilding the wall that the Babylonians tore down. So in all of these stories, uh, everything that was ruined is eventually going to be restored in some measure. Because that's what God does. And, and, and I think there's three ways of remembering this. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel restores worship. Ezra restores people through the word, and Nehemiah is going to restore the wall. So worship, three W's, worship, word, wall. Three leaders, three projects, that's what's coming in this sermon series. And I'm excited, friends. It's going to be fun to to dive into the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament. Uh, Everything's centered on God's word here. We love the word. And I believe the Old Testament, it is going to be so relevant to where we are right now in our world and as a church. So that's what's coming. But today, I want to make a few, a few more points about what the exile ended up producing. Because it had some effects, obviously, on the people of God. And though it was probably the worst thing that ever happened to God's people, God, of course, used it for good. And what God's people learned in this time of exile, I believe, speaks to us in our situation today. So let me give you a few points about this. Number one, in exile, God's people learned to practice their faith at all times and in all places. They learned to practice their faith that wasn't centered on the temple in Jerusalem. You know, one scholar notes that with no temple, really, Israel was was much more willing to accept the fact that Yahweh, the Lord, was not bound to a particular place or even the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem. And without the temple being the, the central kind of unifying force in the community, the Jewish believers were forced to figure it out. How are we going to practice our faith without our corporate worship? Does that sound like it might be applicable to where we are today? And so what they did is they learned to meet in homes for worship, for prayer, for study, They were forced to figure it out because if they did not figure it out, they were not going to be able to pass on their faith to the next generation. And so they embraced it. They embraced a practice of faith not centralized in Jerusalem. And many scholars believe that during this time, this is when the synagogue began to emerge into existence. You know, we don't read about synagogues in the Old Testament, but by the time we get to the New Testament, about 400 years later, synagogues are everywhere. Jesus is going to the synagogue, the Apostle Paul is going to the synagogue, uh, and I think people realized that while the temple was extremely important, let's not forget that God ordained te- the temple in the corporate worship of the people, but they, the people realized that they could still practice and thrive in their faith even in exile. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel eleven sixteen. 
uh, one of the other prophets that prophesied during this time. And God says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. I mean, that is revolutionary at that, at that, at that time, that God would be the sanctuary for the people. And brothers and sisters, God is your sanctuary. If that's true in the time of the exile, how much more is that true in the age of the Holy Spirit, where God's Spirit dwells in us? But the fact is, you may feel very disconnected from God right now. You might feel very disconnected spiritually because of what's been going on. But friends, when COVID-19 hit, God didn't move. God, God didn't go anywhere God is not social distancing from you right now. No, he is with you and he is in you. So if we feel disconnected, it's not because God has moved away from us. And so we need to learn to practice our faith so that it's real at all times and in all places. And so like the Israelites in exile, uh, we need to learn this and, and embrace this and embrace a faith that's not dependent upon a corporate worship gathering on, on Sunday mornings. As vital as that is, and as much as I long for it to return, we can practice our faith in spite of that. But some of you and your families, I know you're, you're really struggling right now spiritually. But I, I want to paint a vision for you. What if, what if God could use this time for your ultimate good spiritually? What if we learned in this time to embrace our biblical call to disciple our children and our teenagers and not just depend upon the church to do it. we got to figure that out. What if we learned how to safely gather with a small group of believers so that our walk with Jesus was growing steadily, even apart from Sunday morning? And what if we learned a rhythm of spiritual disciplines in our own life that sustained us, whether times are good or bad? Friends, all of that is possible. All of that is possible for you. We just have to embrace it. We have to walk and learn new rhythms. And as, as Pastor Manuel said last week, let's not waste our crisis. This is a time to learn new rhythms and disciplines for ourselves, for our families. And so, and I believe that this is one of the lessons God wants to teach us in exile. How to have a decentralized faith, not dependent on the centralized Sunday morning gathering but a faith that is every day, portable, everywhere you go, in all times. So that's number one. We learn how to have a faith in all times and all places. Number two, the second thing that God's people learned to do in exile was that they learned to lament. They learned how to lament. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible called the Book of Lamentations that was written during the time of exile. And while God was certainly working to bring good out of this situation, of course, that doesn't mean uh, there wasn't anything to lament about. I, I just told you how bad it was. It was horrible, all right? There is a lot to lament over. And if you read the book of Lamentations, you will see the passionate heart cry of a people struggling to understand what was going on around them and how God was involved in it all. And it's an inspired book of God's Word that speaks to the deepest pain of human experience that was birthed through the pain of exile. 
So maybe in our time of exile, we can learn how to lament in order to hang on to God, in order to hold fast to God and hang on to your faith. And friends, your lament may become the means by which other people learn how to hang on to God too. Aubrey Sampson in her book, The Louder Song, she says, when the only thing you can sense is God's absence, lament is the rope that will keep you tethered to his presence. Friends, you may not even know how to pray right now. And you can just simply lament that fact that you don't even know how to pray. And the moment you start doing that, guess what? You're praying. You're staying connected. You're tethered to the presence of God. So we can learn how to lament. And finally, number three, in the time of exile, God's people learned to thrive in their new normal. God's people, they learned how to thrive in their new normal. Now, at that time, there were some people that Jeremiah the prophet says that they were falsely prophesying in God's name. They were teaching the people that the exile was going to be very short. I mean, that's what you want to hear in exile, right? Like, this is going to be over quickly. Uh, God's going to end this soon. I mean, don't we all want this time to be over like today? We were ready for it to be over yesterday. But Jeremiah says to the people, no, the exile is not going to be short. In fact, this is what it says in Jeremiah 29. It's what God tells the people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this was God's judgment. God, God carried them there. But then he says to them, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they t- too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Now, in other words, you're going to be here a while. You're going to be here a while. And I want you to learn how to thrive, not just survive. Learn how to thrive. So live your life, build your houses, settle in, and increase. You see, and see, in some people in this time, they actually learned how to thrive economically in a foreign land. And later, those folks are going to be the ones who financially support and make possible all of the building projects that are coming our way in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. So some people thrived economically. And in the same way, I believe God wants us to thrive during the season. God said to the people in exile, I don't want you to decrease, I want you to increase. See, I think the same can be said to the church of Jesus Christ today. During the season, don't decrease, increase. Let's increase our impact, not decrease. During this time, let's increase our encouragement. Let's increase our love, our service, our evangelism. Let's thrive with our giving, with our building project, with our ministry teams. Let's learn how to thrive during exile and see where God brings us on the other side. Friends, so much good could come out of this time if we would just allow God to work with us and we would embrace it. So friends, I've said a lot today because this is the start of our series. Uh, So I wanted to get it all to you, but let me recap this morning. The covenant with God was in ruins. The temple was in ruins. And Jerusalem and the wall were in ruins. And we know that in the future, God is going to use three leaders, 
Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to restore worship in the word and the wall. But we haven't gotten to that yet. Right now, we're in exile. And in fact, as Christians, we're always living in exile away from our final home. We're, we're, we're in the world, but we're not of it. And we just happen to be in a time where our, we feel like it's a greater exile than usual. We don't feel at, as home right now. But like our ancestors in the faith, here is our call and our vision for this time. Friends, learn to practice your faith at all times and in all places. Learn how to do it for yourself Learn how to disciple your family and learn how to live with a small group of believers. We need all of those things. Number two, we need to learn that it's okay, it's important, and it's even necessary to lament. To hang on to God when times feel the toughest. And finally, we need to learn to thrive in this new normal. Brothers and sisters, it seems like this COVID-19 situation is going to be with us for some time. Uh, probably longer than we all initially thought. Now, hopefully it's not 70 years like the exile in Babylon, uh, but it's going to be longer than I think we thought. And there may be certain things that are never the same again. And I think we just have to say, okay, let's accept it. We have to embrace it. And we have to learn how to thrive where God has planted us. And friends, I believe this is what God does. God is a God of restoration. He wants to bring restoration out of the ruins that we find ourselves in right now. So how can you allow God to bring restoration to the ruins that you're facing in your life right now? And I believe God wants to do that in your life, in your family, in our church, and in our community.